Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. Will Andrea Horvath run for mayor of the city of Hamilton? She's going to join us on the show, and we'll ask her that. And due to urban sprawl, Ontario's farmland is decreasing at a fast-moving rate. How can the government actually help to stop this trend? Also, we're going to talk about some of the challenges facing the Ontario NDP party as they try to gain more support. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This morning we found out the Liberal government wants to extend the ability of MPs to appear in the House of Commons virtually. Uh, hybrid is what they call Some people are going to be working from home or their office or wherever, and some will be allowed actually in the House of Commons. Government House Leader Mark Holland says the flexibility is still needed because a new COVID-19 variant could emerge. Now, the opposition conservatives disagree. Of course they do. Uh, with their house leader. John Broussard says uh, millions of Canadians have returned to work, and why shouldn't they MPs as well? It served its purpose. It served its function during COVID. And if anyone or any institution is to signal to Canadians that we're getting back to some sense of normalcy, it should be the House of Commons and Canada and Parliament. Well, you got to assume that uh, the NDP are going to be in favor of this as well, which is probably going to carry the day. Uh, we'll use that to kick off our first segment today, and uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Our segment yesterday was uh, cut short, but we had some technical glitches that uh, we have since rectified with duct tape, I believe it was. But anyway, we're back on it. Uh, Laurie, thanks so much for sticking around. I appreciate the time today. You haven't been on... Oh, wait, I want, she's not been on the phone 24 hours waiting, okay? We... Called her back. But anyway, it's good to have you with us this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we can talk. Let's let's talk about the the, the hybrid parliament then. Uh, something that, as the, you know, the opposition parties are saying here, look, at, you know, we don't really need this anymore. Is the government being overly cautious or is this just a system that they feel that they can handle, that, 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 that works for them right now? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Like, I think there's a lot to unpack here. So as we've kind of moved to this point where, a lot of the restrictions and you know special conditions that we had all had to get used to under COVID, they're starting to move away now. It seems a little odd to me, the timing of it, that they're, they want to plan now to have this option in the fall and onward. Because it strikes me, if you need it in the fall, then ask for it in the fall. But they seem to be maybe want to kind of bake it in now to have the option so that if people get upset about it, they're going to get upset now rather than it be a problem for them in September. I mean, I certainly understand the conservatives' perspective, like that we we should be kind of showing in the House of Commons that there is some sort of return to normal here, and we are we are taking that step in addition to everybody else. At the same time, there are some upshots to being able to have the option to work remotely. And so, for instance, for for MPs with young children, um, it's it's definitely something that would be a benefit to them, and it could make for a more inclusive House of Commons. That said, there are different ways of doing that, um, you know, and it's possible too. Like, what do we mean by a hybrid parliament? Is it possible that people have the option of participating remotely so many times a year? Do you want to keep the amount of remote participation to kind of a certain percentage? Because you are losing something. Like, let's be honest, if MPs aren't walking around, talking to each other, meeting with stakeholders, being presented with questions by media at the end of the day that they can't avoid, you are losing something if you don't have that hub of activity in Ottawa. Uh, and I understand, and, and I 
fully endorse the idea, by the way, that, yeah, we have to, you know, embrace the, the 21st century technology. I mean, because let's face it, two and a half years ago, we thought oh, that's a ridiculous idea. It won't work. And it does. And even, uh, you know, Supreme Court Chief Justice Wagner was talking about uh, the court system starting to use this stuff on a more regular basis, even though when things return to quote unquote normal. But politics is a different animal, though, isn't it, Laurie? I mean, you you need to be there. You need to. that That's part of the uh, the. the scrutiny that, that the media needs i think is to actually have them there so you know so you can have the scrum in the hallways and you can talk to these leaders uh and and there's some drawbacks to doing that remotely because they're just not available and uh, an awful lot of the time and plus the fact that there's some mps that uh, don't know how to turn the camera off either and they're the one guy that was in various stages of undress about three different times so there's there's always that too i guess yeah there's those hazards uh, that might come up yeah exactly <laughs> unforced errors as it was uh, but I, I i i i agree with you i'm the timing of this i find very odd yeah and it's sort of like if it's something that in fact we end up needing god forbid we're in a position where public health regulations are going to require such a measure you can imagine that the provisions of that can be made when the time is right and so not to be cynical and you know maybe maybe that's just me and where i am in life at this point but i think about this in the context too of the liberal ndp agreement which i have feared is some measure, at least in part, not only to work together on common projects in terms of policy, but also to be able to manage the procedures and the scrutiny function that is supposed to take place in the House of Commons. Does it make it easier for the government to not have MPs there and to not, or at least not as many of them, and to not have the opposition be able to command as much media time, attention, you know, public interest in the points that they're making? Is there an upshot for a government to be able to minimize and sort of put into a different mode the role of parliament? And as you say, you know, the NDP, given that the conservatives are saying they don't want this and it's a minority government, we have to assume that the NDP's support of this is going to be essential to be able to get it passed. Exactly. Uh, a couple of other things. We got into this conversation a little bit yesterday uh, about Justin Trudeau's future. And and mm -hmm. I know there's been speculation that he's not going to be the leader come next election. Uh, and I think that was pre pre uh, premised on the fact that the election's not, probably not going to be till 2025. It's not necessarily guaranteed now because of what's going on. And uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, the NDP leader, is expressing some concern about some of the things that uh, the Liberals are not doing, I guess, that he would like to see happen, especially when it comes to mm -hmm. some of the inflation average. Uh, if the plug gets pulled, are the Liberals going to be comfortable with Justin Trudeau as the leader? And I'm talking about voter fatigue here. And uh, as you've mentioned to, to us previously, any government in the third term uh, has runs that risk right now that people are going to say, I know what, we're tired of you guys. Let's, let's see the next act. Oh, absolutely. And because the Conservatives, too, are having a leadership contest that's getting a lot of attention for them, and there's lots of conversations about where the direction of the Conservative Party is going and what the role of the leader will be in uniting the party and things like that. So I think it kind of depends, right? Like if there's a really, uh, if there's a feasible alternative, if people get the sense that something's happening on the conservative side where they'd really come across to voters as an alternative to government, then that equation becomes different for the liberals too. Like who, if they were going to run Justin Trudeau, who do they want to run him against? And I suspect they would like to run against Pierre Polyev. They don't necessarily want to run Justin Trudeau against Jean Charest, for example, or even Patrick Brown. And so it's a kind of a calculation for them. Also, the thing about political parties now, I find, is there's a lot of really kind of doubling down on the brand and the identity of the leader. And so even if you compared with Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives, for example, there is a really 
you know, heavy branding and focus on the leader and the, the party forms around the leader in a way that it didn't, you know, decades ago when the party was kind of the institution that turned over and leaders came and went. Now it's almost like parties remake themselves when there's a leadership change. And so changing the leadership of the Liberal Party at this moment, when Trudeau has totally remade the thing in his own image, would be very difficult, I think, right? Like aside from what's going on with other political parties and when the election would be and things like that, it's going to be very hard for that party to turn over, no matter when they do it, to have someone else, you know, to be the ice sculpture that people rally around, to be the face of the party, to be, you know, and what would that mean for their progressive agenda, the alliance with the NDP, the relationship with the provinces like this? It, Trudeau is very much a commanding presence in that party. So a switch is going to be a big exercise. Well, and not only that, but as you say, he's molded this party in into what he wants to, to be uh, and you can't change gears like that so uh, i think the assumption right now is if he were to step down today uh that christia freeland would be the odds on favorite to be the next leader but she's very much in the same mold so have you really changed anything well that's it too right is that you might get a, an almost like a transfer of voter fatigue where if voters don't see this as being much of a change then it doesn't actually give the party any kind of a boost when it comes to changing a new leader. And I think, you know, she's a very well-known commodity and there's been lots of speculation about whether she's really kind of in charge of things and how much space she takes up around the cabinet room, given the fact that she's been, you know, holding these major portfolios. Now she has finance, but also deputy prime minister and she's been global affairs, you know, she's been intergovernmental. Like she's really had all of these files. And when you look at her mandate letters, there's really nothing that she can't, get involved in if that's what she wants to do. And so I think you're right. Like what would be the conversation if there was a leadership change and what would be Trudeau's terms for leaving? Would he be leaving on his own terms and opening up a kind of exciting competition that could see people like Mark Carney and people who are coming from the outside who have a whole lot to bring to the table? Or is it going to be a shuffling of the deck chairs where somebody who's there now takes over, which I think would be far less you know, compelling as a narrative for voters who are trying to decide whether they want to stick with the liberals or go somewhere else. And I know that as long as this talk is going on, I mean, the last time uh, there was a, a, a leadership shift to this case was crutching into Paul Martin, and it, it did not go well. Uh, it, as we all know, there was kind of a you know dissension in the ranks there, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which only you know hurt the liberals, I think, with their branding. And then, of course, when he finally handed it over and said, "Here, you can take it," uh, there wasn't a whole lot left there. Well, that's it, and they had let it go on so long that the party was already torn apart, and not over necessarily deep ideological divisions, although certainly there's there's a difference between Gretchen and Martin and there's a difference between the blue liberals and, you know, all the rest of it. But there was really a sense that the party had gone through hell by the time Martin took it. And so then couple that with the sponsorship scandal, with the, you know, Stephen Harper uniting the right and Paul Martin just couldn't hang on. But that's another thing too, right? Like there's the events around it. So you can look at what happens in the Liberal Party as kind of a vacuum, but it's not going to happen like that. There's also going to be whoever wins the conservative leadership race is going to change, you know, the the facts on the ground for the leadership in the other parties, too. Uh, let's got a couple of minutes. Let's pivot over to that other leadership race that's going on right now. Uh, Pierre Polyev, of course, accusing uh, Patrick Brown of uh, some chicanery, of course, when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, getting people to, to vote and uh, fundraising. Uh, Jean Charest was on the Sunday morning political shows, of course, this past weekend, uh, saying, I will win. Uh, kind of like Nessim Dorma, I guess, from the opera. Uh, but 
is is anything really changing? I mean, Polyev still seems to be the odds-on favorite, but I mean, I've talked to some political folks, especially that are you know insiders with the Conservative Party, and they're not really comfortable with him because they are concerned about how he's going to be perceived. Yeah, and th- there's a sense too that like, what did Pierre Polyev kind of peak too early? Um, there is there is a sense, and, and Sheree has made this point a few times that the front runner tends not to win because of the structure of the ballot, because you don't have as much growth potential if you're the person who's out front the whole time. And in a way, the length of this thing, the fact that it's three months to sign up the memberships and then three months more, gives P- Pierre Polyev longer runway than he wants. Like he's only got somewhere to to drop at this point, whereas the other candidates are using the time to pick up speed. Now, that said, there's this weird dead time, it seems to me now, because all the memberships are signed up. There are no more debates. We've got until September 10th for them to announce the winner. And so there's this weird sort of like, what are the candidates supposed to do now? And so rather than be doing things like participating in debates, they're attacking one another. And so we're seeing the debate play out that way, where the, the candidates are trying to undermine one another. And it's nasty. Now, I have no idea, you know, what, whether or not there's any truth to anything that, that Pierre Polyev is saying about the Patrick Brown campaign, and there's an investigation, I guess, so we'll figure that out. But at this point, I don't know if anybody who signed up to vote for Patrick Brown cares about anything that Pierre Polyev has to say about it. I'm not sure how much flow there's going to be from the supporters of one camp to another, even if the fortunes of certain candidates start to ch- seem to change over time. The, the time thing is, is a problem to me, too. I mean, you yeah. know, you know when, when Martin did step down after the 2006 election, uh, it took them a, what, almost a year, and 10 months, I guess it was, to actually pick a new leader, which is, and, and public interest just kind of waned on that. And, and I think it waned within the party. I mean, they ended up with Stefan Dion, uh, and that didn't go well for them. You're right. I mean, there's so, um, always a momentum when there's a, a leadership race like this. People are going to say, oh, well, how this guy's going to do it? What's what's the party going to be doing now? Uh, over the summer, these guys, I, I think a lot of the public just going to forget about this whole thing and just, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, that race. Uh, and that's not the kind of momentum I think the conservatives were looking for. Oh, no. And that's going to be the problem, right? Is if people who had signed up because they were interested in a candidate and then over time, yeah, like they get busy, they focus on other things. And if the commitment to the the party is fragile, you might see some people just not show up, right? And so like the candidates are talking about the hundreds of thousands of people they've signed up. Well, what's reasonable and realistic to expect in terms of how many of those people are actually going to show up? You know, like it's not going to be all of them. And the ones who show up are not going to necessarily rank six candidates on a ballot. And so it makes it really hard to predict because there's, you know, it's not just a question of a referendum, right? Like there's so many choices for the can- for the membership to make. And so I think we've got lots of room for things to keep developing. Yeah. And, and that's the, uh, as you're right, the more important aspect of it is if the conservatives who are signed up by this thing lose interest, uh, uh, that that could swing this the one way or another very quickly too. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, Laura, I'm glad we were able to hook up and finish our conversation. Uh, thank you thank so you. much for this as always. Uh, take care and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, you too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, uh, we talked with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, just after he made the announcement, the official announcement, uh, that he will not be seeking re-election in uh, this October's uh, municipal elections. Uh, and we talked about a number of different things. Obviously, he wanted to talk about his accomplishments, but uh, we talked about the future as well. And uh, the mayor said he's not ruling out endorsing another candidate. I can tell you what I don't want in a candidate, and that is, uh, you know, a candidate uh, that either trans- you know, 
works uh, works from conspiracy theories or others that uh, that uh, you know can't collaborate or can't get along with folks and want to turn our city back to the fifties and sixties. He went on to say that uh, that he thought that uh, Andrea Horvath might make a very good candidate too, uh, and uh, just kind of left it at that. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, Andrea Horvath, of course, is the recently re-elected MPP for Hamilton Center, the former NDP leader, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, let's talk about the future. Andrea, thanks for joining us on the program. Good to have you with us today. Always my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, the mayor was very gracious in his comments about you yesterday, Andrea, and, and you wrote a, 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 a official release yesterday thanking the mayor for his service and his great accomplishments. When you see this mutual admiration society in politics, it usually kind of one, makes you wonder, is this leading to something? Have you and Fred Eisenberger talked about uh, some sort of collaboration, some sort of endorsement? And are you even considering running for mayor? Well, there are some pretty blunt questions there. Uh, yeah. So cer- certainly I've, I've talked to, to, to the mayor over the years. It's, it's uh, one of the things he's always been very uh, quick to do is uh, take my calls and have conversations about all kinds of things that affect uh, Hamilton and uh, what 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 I can do or what I uh, was able to do to help uh, move the um, you know the city's needs forward at Queens Park. Uh, in regards to the you know the future, I still have some serious uh, work that I have a responsibility for at Queens Park, uh, including the likelihood. I just found out today, of course, many of us did that. Uh, uh, the premier is um, swearing his cabinet in on Friday, which uh, is a requirement to call back the legislature. And all signs point to that happening sooner rather than later. So I do have to take my seat as an MPP. I'm honored to have been given that, given that privilege by the people of Ontario of um, Hamilton Centre again, and uh, and I take it seriously. Uh, I do also have to help with the transition uh, to the interim leader. And provide some, um, you know, some support in that regard. Those things are my responsibilities, and I don't take them lightly. Having said that, the the work that I do, at, whether it's at Queens Park, whether it's here in community, whether it was with my party, stems from the passion I have uh, for people. And the people that I have the passion for are the people here in Hamilton, uh, those that I've represented uh, in War Two initially, and then of course in the uh, uh, Hamilton Centre in the last number of years and and that passion never goes away bill you know that you've been an elected Mm -hmm. person you understand where that comes from so i I, i've learned to never say never i'm certainly honored and humbled by the uh uh, the conversation that's happening uh around uh, around the possibilities uh, for the future um at this point i'm I'm not you know i'm not uh, i haven't landed let's put it that way Okay, and that's a pretty aggressive list that you just talked about, about things that, that you feel responsible that you have to, to carry out on. Uh, but you're also a veteran politician, and you understand that uh, you that the the election is in October, and if you're going to make this jump or this transition, uh, you got to make a move pretty soon. You can't wait until you know the final day, because there's already three committed people in this that are already out there uh, knocking on doors and doing what they need to do. So, what's the time frame, Andrea? If if I, I know you're talking to people, I know people are talking to you. Uh, and you're weighing your options at this stage, but uh, you can't wait forever on this. What, what time are you giving yourself to make a decision, yay or nay? Well, I, again, it, it's uh, it's it's certainly something that's on my mind, but it's also being at this point um, put to, to somewhat to the side as I fulfill those obligations that I've described. You, you know me; I'm a pretty serious person. I, I take my responsibilities uh, to heart, and. Um, you know, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave uh, you know the the caucus uh, or the party in the lurch. But certainly, there are some timelines that are tight, and and so I am weighing all of these things uh, 
um, you know, very carefully. And I'm uh, very appreciative of the uh, people that are reaching out to me and the, um, you know, the, the, the excitement that I'm hearing from some, from some uh, parts of, uh, of our great city. Uh, these things are all part of the mix in terms of my decision making. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, timing is always uh, important. And, and the other thing is to acknowledge with, with, with gratitude, as I am, the, um, the, the people of Hamilton Centre who, who sent me back to Queen's Park. So these are things that I'm, I'm thinking about very, very seriously. Uh, at timelines, we all know it's August 19th is the last day to, uh, uh, to be a nominated candidate for the municipal election. And that, uh, that date looms largely in my, uh, in my thoughts. Okay, so and and let's but the provincial stuff. I mean, let's face it; you're going to get called back because of the cabinet. Uh, then you're going to pass the budget. Uh, the house will anyway. Whether you're going to vote for it or not is uh, is a, another matter. But uh, so there's the summer to do this. Uh, there are three declared candidates right now: Ijaz uh, Butt, uh, Keenan Loomis, and Bob Bertina. If you decide, you're a citizen of Hamilton too. I mean, you're going to be voting in this October election. Are you comfortable with any one of the three of them that, to, to say, yeah, they'll do a good job, or do you see something lacking in in what they're proposing? Well, I haven't done a, a lot of uh, research on their platforms, to to be frank. Um, uh, but you know and, all so of I'm them. I'm not really. I'm sorry. Do I do I know all of them? Yeah, of course you, I do. I do know all of them. <laughs> um, but what I what I can say is um, is I, I certainly uh, believe that I, I bring something different to the table than any of those candidates. I, I think that it's important to acknowledge what it takes to be a candidate in the first place, to put your name out there, uh, to to seek uh, elected office. It's uh, no small. Uh, it's no small move, you know, it, it's quite important. And, uh, and it's great that people are still doing those kinds of things, you know, getting on a ballot, putting their vision out there. Uh, but I do bring something different uh, than, uh, than all of those uh, folks. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, if I decide to, um, to ask the people of Hamilton to consider me for that position, uh, then I will be, I will be making sure that I, uh, uh, that I put my qualifications out there as well, many of which people already know. Uh, well, uh, certainly. They, as a matter of fact, I guess to a certain extent they know, well, the uh, the two frontrunners anyway, Mr. Butt, uh, and I know has his own uh, his own section of folks that like him and, and uh, followed him for a number of years. Uh, Bertine is a former mayor. Keenan Loomis, of course, president of, this, of the Chamber of Commerce. A lot of the stuff that you've talked about and supported, Andrea, over the years are, are things that Keenan Loomis is putting into his platform. The option, of course, as, as somebody who's been through a lot of elections in uh, the last number of years, is you have to make, okay, am I going to be different here? Or is this a situation where we're, they're both heading towards the same goal, basically with the same ideals? Is there a concern here uh, about winnability if, if, in fact, you do decide to run? Well, that would be obviously the decision of, of Hamiltonians. Um, that's uh, something I would never... Um, you know, suggest that I had have the, the the skinny on. Do you know what I mean? People, I mean, sure. I guess there's that old saying, you know, elections matter. But uh, but uh, should that um, should that be the case in terms of uh, of uh, the race? Then then that's the the kind of thing that Hamiltonians are going to have to um, uh, determine in, in terms of the uh, the future leadership of this city. There is a precedent for this, of course, and uh, we mentioned to our listeners, of course, uh, members of the Ontario Legislature would have to resign to run for a municipal seat. Uh, and the only time that's happened in recent memory, of course, was uh, your friend David Christofferson, uh, who did that some years oh. ago, of course, resigned his chair and, and, and ran for mayor of the city of Hamilton, unsuccessfully uh, for David. But uh, so there's a precedent there, uh, an NDP MPP running for mayor again. It's, you wouldn't be the first one. And, uh, we'll, 
I just wonder just about the timing, and that's the concern I think that I know you're having, and I know it takes a lot of time because to resign a seat and, and to put your heart and soul into an election race like that is going to be quite an undertaking. Uh, Andrea, I know you've got a busy day. I want to thank you for taking a few minutes with us this morning, and uh, we'll certainly stay in touch, and uh, we'll be watching. Take care. Okay. Thank you, Bill. All the best. Andrea Horvath, MPP for Hamilton Center, former NDP leader and possible mayoral candidate. We'll see what happens. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a few weeks ago, we went through a provincial election, and, and one of the key topics of discussion in the, the some of the debates anyway, but just about every municipality, uh, was about preserving green space and, of course, agriculture. And uh, the government got reelected, and we know that there are some possible you know conflicts with some of the policies that they've got, especially about those two subjects. And one of those, of course, is, is seeping down to the municipal level, and that's about urban boundaries, etc. There's a great concern here uh, about loss of farmland, and not just in Hamilton and London, but right across this province. Uh, and uh, the numbers are rather staggering, and uh, we want these to be part of the, the debate and part of the conversation. And to that end, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Drew Spolstra, who is the Vice President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Uh, Drew, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us on the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. And, you know, I, I, I was reading an article the other day about, uh, actually, it was about our sister station in Calgary, uh, talking about loss of farmland out in Alberta, and it got me to thinking, and I started looking at some of the statistics, as bad as it may be out there, Ontario's got a real problem here. Uh, the, the, the rate at which we're losing farmland here is, is staggering, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. We, uh, we're, we're losing uh, almost 320 acres a day now. Uh, that's up from the last census period in 2016 from 175, so it's just something that we see as uh, unsustainable going forward. What's what's is this purely but urban expansion? What, what's act, what actually happening here? I mean, I know you've tracked this stuff over the last little while. Uh, mainly, yes, it is uh, due to urban urban expansion, uh, mostly in southern Ontario. Um, you know, we we are aware that only five percent of our land here in Ontario is uh, suitable for agriculture and food production. And the, the large majority of that is in the, the southern end of the province, of course, where most people live. Um, we have a, a little thing called the Canadian Shield and whatnot in the north, so it's uh, we're not, uh, you know, as able to farm uh, intensely up there. But um, most of our land down here is being lost to uh, to urbanization. Well, and, uh, you know, we can certainly relate to that, of course, uh, you know, the Niagara Peninsula just uh, next door here. Uh, and uh, I, I think about this all the time when I go to visit our daughter up in Barrie. You know, you go by the Holland Marsh there, which is, I think, it, it's, I, I think the rest of the world is envious anytime they see the Holland Marsh and the pictures there and the production that goes on there. And, uh, you know, when you get ideas like, you know, putting bypasses uh, that's going to have an adverse effect on the water systems, uh, it's it's about time, I guess, somebody speaks up about these sorts of things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Holland Marsh is certainly, uh, you know, a crown jewel of uh, food production here in Ontario. Um, the other side of the coin is we need uh, solid infrastructure too to to ship and move our goods and our products across and the, you know our, our food resources across the province. So there is a, a balancing act between uh, you know um, land use and uh, and better infrastructure as well. But um, you know our, our main priority is certainly trying to uh, protect and preserve uh, every viable acre of food production land that we can. And, and with that in mind, Drew, uh, do you have a voice in these decisions, either municipally or provincially, of course? As you say, there are decisions being made almost uh, every week at, at, at one of those levels of government uh, that's going to have an impact on, on possible farmland and potential farmland. Do you have input into those decisions uh, to, to make sure that they're cognizant of the impact that this may or may not have on the industry? 
Well, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture is uh, is the largest farm lobby organization in Ontario. So we, um, you know, we do have a voice, uh, you know, when it comes to decisions being made provincially. We've also got a number of, uh, of local affiliates around the province, and, and they have a solid voice when it comes to uh, municipal decisions being made. So uh, a number of our county federations have been making presentations to their respective councils. Um, uh, we've done that here in Hamilton as well. And, uh, you know, we've had some success around the province in terms of uh, what uh, what municipalities are putting into their uh, official plan updates and their land needs assessments and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned off the top, there is um, a strong desire to continue to build houses uh, from the provincial level. And um, we need to keep that lobby effort up that we can do in a different way than we've done it for the last 50 years. It's not uh, it doesn't necessarily just need to keep sprawling out. We can look at other options. Drew, is uh, any concern here about the, the, the fate of the family farm? Because we've heard about some of the concerns, and, and frankly, it's a costly enterprise. And, and, you know, we've known that there was a concern a few years ago that generationally uh, some young families uh, with society, oh, I, I know mom farmed and dad farmed and grandpa farmed. I don't know if we want to do this anymore. And and a lot of because I've, I've noticed in a lot of these meetings, especially at the municipal level, Sometimes the the crowd in that goes up to one of these public meetings is almost split. Half of them are owning this land and looking at it and say, "I don't think we want to do this anymore," which is problematic. I mean, it's bad enough, I guess, if you, if you're getting urban sprawl that's going to be there. But oftentimes, people are saying, "Yeah, I've had enough of this." Is is that still a concern? It's still a mindset of some of the farmers. Well, there's a concern, and there's certainly a lot of pressure, as you said, uh, you know, on the family farm. I think part of the biggest challenge is that. Um, you know, when, when municipalities and provincial governments are making these decisions on, you know, a, a fairly short-term basis, uh, you know, some are reviewing these things every five years, some are, are trying to spread it out to, to 20 or so years, it, it creates a lot of challenges for long-term planning on the farm. And, and farming is not just, a, um, you know, a profession you can pick up one one day and, and, uh, and carry on the next. It takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of investment, and... Uh, and there's certainly a lot of challenges involved. So anything we can do to uh, sort of stabilize uh, the long-term future of the industry here in Ontario, uh, I think it's going to benefit the family farm going forward. But, uh, you know, when we keep seeing a lot of these challenges and constant pressure from, from development and uh, changing land uses, it, it creates, uh, creates a lot of challenges for farmers out there. Well, and I guess, let's face it, if you are having some challenges, and it's, it, I know I've talked to a lot of farmers. I mean, worked on a farm when I was a kid going through school. So I, I know a little bit about the work, and it's, uh, it's, it's just like they, they say in the commercials. It's sun up to sundown, and sometimes beyond sundown, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, and if somebody comes along and says, you know what, I'd, I'd, I'd like to rezone this and build houses, the financial end of that thing can be very tempting, I guess, for some of them. So it's got to be made worthwhile, I would think, for those families to understand that, yeah, we can we can rough this out and go through the, the rough patches if we have to, as long as we know that the government's got our backs. Do you feel comfortable uh, with the, the way that governments are handling the, the farming industry right now, that they, they are being supportive of you? Well, I think there's a lot of good things happening. Um, you know, we've we've uh, moved forward on a lot of initiatives around uh, producing local food and and sourcing local food and things like that. So um, those have been uh, been beneficial for farmers, particularly those around uh, around you know core urban areas where there's a, a larger market for them to access. But uh, I do think you know different levels of government can do uh, better jobs and promoting agriculture in their regions. 
uh, ensuring that, um, you know, red tape is reduced and that those businesses can continue to thrive. And so that we're not only, uh, you know, protecting the farmland, that we're also supporting the farmer and the, the businesses that, uh, that also support the farm network as well around the area. And that means that local businesses also have a role to play here, don't they? Even in the restaurant business, the you know farm to table attitude that a lot of them are undertaking right now has got to be beneficial, I would think, for for farm industries. For sure, it is. Yeah, uh, you know um, that's a two way street supporting local businesses for sure, and uh, and you know we like to do that wherever we can in the farm business, and I think uh, if they can return the favor, that's awesome. Well, we've just uh, gone through and are still going through some problems. Uh, when it comes to things like supply chains, et cetera, getting uh, goods to market, and that includes uh, food from farms to grocery stores, and that's somewhat problematic. And uh, I, I tried to advocate as, as much as we could on this program. To, uh, you know, part of the solution is, is local farming. Uh, you know, you don't have to put everything on a transport truck and drive it across the country. An awful lot of that stuff can be available uh, right here in this area. And, uh, you know, people need to be aware of that. And they, uh, the retailers need to be aware of that, too, uh, which is why we need to continue to have these discussions. Uh, Drew, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Thank you so much. Uh, continued good luck. And uh, we'll stay in touch with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're at a time of political transition these days, of course. As we just talked about, uh, there's going to be an opening for the city of Hamilton mayor. This job, you want the, to apply, they got that shot. Uh, and two Ontario political parties are looking for leaders. Uh, both the NDP, where Andrew Horvath is stepping down, and the Liberals, where Stephen Del Duca uh, stepped down after uh, the results of the election just a couple of weeks ago. But uh, there are challenges for all political parties. I mean, when you don't win, you got to have an assessment of just what went wrong and what went right and whether or not the voters still want you. Interesting piece from our next guest uh, that talks about that. Uh, three challenges facing the Ontario NDP as they try to win more support. Uh, the author is Sam Rutley. Sam, of course, is a PhD student of political science at Western University, and he joins us on the program to talk about this. Sam, good to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, good morning, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to have you back with us, and, and very timely, of course, because we talked about this, I guess, really since election night. There are takeaways from the, the, an election result like this, and uh, uh, the NDP, I guess, can congratulate themselves that, yes, they are still the opposition at Queen's Park, but they lost seats, uh, some that they thought they were going to be able to hang on to. They, let's face it, had some ideas that maybe they could actually win this election and form a government. Uh, as I just mentioned in the preamble, this is a time where they really have to do some soul-searching and say, uh, just who are we and, uh, and what can we do to ourselves to make ourselves more attractive to voters? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the NDP was kind of in an awkward position, I think, because they can they can get to that state where they're in second place. Uh, they're the they're the sort of established opposition, but they can't quite make that leap. Government, right? They've only really been able to do it once, and that's because really, um, outside of of the Conservatives and the Liberals, um, the NDP have always had this this awkward uh, position, right? That that although they they uh, have this relatively stable, at least historically, um, base of support. They can't quite um, make that extra leap. Um, and so the big decision the party has to make, it's always had to make this decision and it continues to be the one it, it, it has to make in this next leadership race, which is, does it want to um, base itself as this principled opposition party or does it want to continue to make that effort um, to kind of move more to the left of center um, and try and go for government um, again, like it's been uh, attempting to do in the last several elections? 
And does that mean they have to give up their identity? I mean, if, if you play word association, I guess, you know, stop two people at Oxford and Richmond Street downtown London uh, and say, NDP, what do you think? Uh, they're going to say, what, the party of the working man, the working person. That's what these guys are all about. Uh, but then you look at the results of the election a couple of weeks ago, Sam, and uh, the Ford government did a pretty good job of attracting a lot of those, especially some of the skilled labor jobs. They, they seem to be gravitating to the, to the PCs now. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the, typically the, um, the conventional base of support for, for the New Democrats and for the left more generally has always been seen in this um, class-based dynamic uh, where, where the NDP tends to win over uh, what been conventionally called it the working class, but which mostly means um, private sector unions. Um, and I think what's this election would seem to suggest uh, that that that's no longer reliable, right? That there's the, been this concentrated conservative effort. Um, you can see this in a lot of the the sort of conversations that conservative intellectuals have with each other. Um, they've been going after this demographic for a very long time, and it seems like this represents the year when you're going to see that that shift. Um, and so the part the new Democrats, it seems like they have to pivot. Uh, that either they have to expand um, their economic policies, right? That they, they sort of have to expand from the particular interests of the private sector unions to to a broader concept of the working class, or they have to, you know, perhaps uh, take the initiative on on you know the pressing social issues um, that 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 preoccupy the province. And, and that seems to be their dilemma. Uh, and as we're moving forward, I mean, I understand the circumstances are different here. Uh, you know, we've just gone through two and a half years of COVID and, and people are concerned about job security. And, and that basically was, was Ford's mantra during the election, wasn't it? I'll get you a job, you know, a good paying job. And you know, I'm going to build highways. I'm going to build this, going to build that. And you saw the trade unions kind of gravitate to that. Uh, did the NDP simply say, well, I guess we can write them off. We're going to just go stick with private sector unions and, and try to appeal to other areas uh, because they seem to have spent an awful lot of time this election. And, and frankly, I guess for the last couple of years now, uh, leaning more towards social issues than about labor issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's the, the, the dilemma is, I think, is that in many ways um, the left um, in, in the sense of, of, sort of ideologically left voters who identify as left-wing voters or progressive voters. Um, they seem to be gravitating more towards social issues, um, issues related to social justice, um, indigenous issues, climate change, uh, which perhaps isn't quite a social issue, but as those are really what matter. Uh, and so that's been influencing the party, at least on this elite activist level, um, to prioritize those issues. But at the same time, the party um, in, in aspiring after government um, is moving more to the center, taking these more moderate positions to go after, um, you know, suburban uh, middle class voters that the other major parties are going after. And so you see them emphasizing the exact same issues, uh, you know, like affordability, uh, access to social services, economic growth, prosperity. Um and offering alternatives, but really, uh, in some sense, the same thing. Do they have the ability to pivot? You just mentioned that a few minutes ago, that, that they're going to have to reassess things and do. Uh, 
because you know, the, I think a lot of people's perception of the NDP is is that, as you mentioned in the article, ideological, ideologically driven, uh, and they they don't sway from that one way or another when it comes to issues like climate, uh, when it comes to a number of different issues, uh, social justice, and things of this nature. Uh, but uh, for instance, an NDP or in Alberta is probably different from an NDP or in Ontario. I mean, Rachel Notley got elected as a premier out there. I mean, you never thought you'd see that coming. Uh, but because they have a different policy towards energy and about pipelines, and for instance, people would hear in Ontario, uh, it, is it within the, their DNA to be able to do that on a consistent basis and, and get a read on what's going on in society or in, the, in their communities and, and be able to pivot toward that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the NDP has a, has a unique voice as, as, as the left wing party, right? That that in Ontario and, and in Canada broadly in every province, there'll always be um, some segment of left wing voters that the party can can rely on and can, can form its base around. And in Ontario, um, that gives them, you know, at least 15% of the vote. Um, and, and that's a stable, um, reliable kind of opposition status. Not quite not quite main opposition, but but third party at the very least. Um, but if they want to move past that uh, and get into government, which, which in a system like Ontario is really how you make an impact, uh, they have to move beyond it. Um, and, and, and like all the other parties do, fight over this, this, this shifting center. And, but the problem there is, is in going after that portion of the vote, they risk sort of losing their identity. Um, I think in a lot of elections, you know, this one included, but also in the past, there's sort of this question of, I think that a lot of voters ask, is at the end of the day, uh, what's really uh, the difference between between the Liberals and the New Democrats, um, which has promoted every time the Liberals lose this this talk of merging, right? There's this idea that the parties are effectively the same, and as and 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 only serve to divide. Um, the sort of left of center vote. Um, but that's despite the fact that the NDP always has this um, different identity that it's grappling with in terms of how prominent it wants to place that um, when it's when it's fighting in elections. How difficult is it for a political party, in this case, the NDP here in Ontario, uh, to change their political stripe? I mean, and again, I think there's a perception in the minds of many voters right now that the NDP is, is, is you know, they're, they're not the, the party of business. And we're, let's face it, you know, we're in tough economic times right now. And I, I talked to so many voters over the last couple of weeks in this election that just said, no, there's no way you're going to handle them the reins of power. Uh, they're anti-business. Uh, whether that's right or wrong, that's the perception a lot of people have right now. Yeah, I mean, well, well, it is possible Um Given given their origins um, as a left wing party, as, as the CCF, as a as a socialist party, um, they can totally sort of seize on this this anti business uh, mantra. Um, you can see to some extent that, that Jagmeet Singh federally has has set up this dichotomy between the the billionaires uh, and the people, right? Right, arguing that that. Um, what wealthy, powerful business elites um, are not properly paying their fair share right now, properly contributing to the overall, you know, equality, uh, well-being, success of, 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 of the country. And as a result, the, 
government kind of ought, ought to step in and, and try and balance things out there. And so th- that's a possibility. Um, and I think in doing so, um, the party would, would emphasize the same issues that the, that the conservatives are winning on, um, but, but offer a, an alternative framework, right? That, that whereas, um, whereas the conservatives are, are emphasizing um, sort of limited government intervention, uh, sort of low uh, taxes as a way to, and, and infrastructure investments as a way to kind of open up uh, the potential of business, uh, the NDP could emphasize the role the government has, um, you know, through um, through making sure that billionaires pay their fair share, through greater investments in, in social services, um, the role the government can play in kind of creating prosperity for all. And I, I know that some NDP supporters are going to listen to that. So, oh, come on, no, no, they support local businesses. I'm, I'm sure they do. Uh, I'm not talking about, the, you know, the, the mom and pop stores yeah. or some of the local shops. Uh, but you hear, the, and, and this is basically, you know, the mantra, you know. Uh, you mentioned the environmental issues. And just, we're going to make those great big companies that are polluting, we're going to make them pay for that. Uh, and the end you know, the idea about the rich, we're going to make the rich pay even more than they're paying right now to try to help with the, erase the deficit. And, uh, and and I know some people that do quite well now. They're looking at say, so I'm being taxed now because I was successful? No way I'm ever going to support a party like that. And and that's the sort of thing that I guess ingrains that sort of thing in people's mindsets right now. Uh, that they 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 don't seem to to be able to get it as as one guy told me a couple of weeks ago on the show, uh, and that's why they they don't seem to have that economic support right now. And uh, and right now the economy matters an awful lot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I would think that they would win on that message if um, not quite the majority, but if enough if enough voters kind of felt themselves to be on that losing side of the. Um, sort of economic spectrum, right? That that the the province has been going through quite good economic times up until the last couple of years, and so um, everyone feels as if as if uh, they're doing well, and that they're going to be the people that the government would kind of disadvantage, right? That that, that they're the prosperous, and so an NDP government would come and and tax away all their money. Uh, but I think what could happen in the next couple of years with, with uh, you know, inflation, uh, increasing problems with affordability, uh, you know, housing, um, you could see more people, you know, such as like younger demographics, right? The sort of people who um, are getting increasingly frustrated at their inability to buy a home, uh, that, that they might resonate with resonate with that, with that message more. Um, if the party kind of wants to continue focusing on those, those, these kind of very explicitly economic issues. I, by the way, we should mention, I know that you wrote the piece about the challenges facing the Ontario NDP. Uh, the Liberals could be and probably should be going through the same process right now after getting uh, pretty much skunked in the last couple of provincial elections. Uh, I bought, the question, I guess, for everyone right now, I guess, Sam, is who are we? Uh, you know, and, and do the voters know who we are and do they like who we are? And and that, that requires some soul searching. I guess they, they always say, you know, the only way you're ever going to fix something is to first of all admit that there's a problem, and uh, that's that's a difficult thing for political parties to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think, like we mentioned earlier, I think I think you're right in saying that that, that a lot of the province has this this reservation about electing the new Democrats. Um, so because of that, the liberals can kind of 
maintain this position as the as the as the alternative, right? That that um, if if you could say that the conservatives are going to be in power for uh, uh, several more years, um, there's going to be this point at which the party is inevitably going to um, decrease in popularity, right? That there's going to be this sentiment. This is just like what happened to the liberals in 2018, right? That, that enough people are going to be um, upset at what the conservative government is doing and want that alternative, right? Want to want to remove the conservatives and bring in an alternative. And it seems like, to me at least, that the liberals will always have that position. Um, and I guess this choice that they're going to go through in electing the new leader and deciding what what direction they want to pursue in the coming years is is, is how to best establish themselves as that old for this government in waiting uh, that can point out you know where the conservative government is going wrong and point out its flaws and sort of pave the way for this alternative and and that's a kind of multi-election effort it seems the two things going on first of all as you say the assessment and Obviously, they're going to have to pick a leader. Uh, Andrea Horvath is stepping down as the leader of the provincial party. So uh, maybe this is, you know, the chicken and egg thing, which comes first here. Do they select a leader and then decide on the policy, or do they decide what kind of a policy they want and select a leader that reflects that? Uh, well, I think the, I think the leaders will, the, the candidates will come in with their own policy platforms um, to the extent that, as you see in conservative leadership races, they'll sort of be a leader for every option um you know hopefully you should see um you know a leader perhaps more linked to the party's traditional roots in in labor unions whether those are private or public sector um and advocate for the party to kind of um sort of re-engage with their relationship with those groups uh you're probably going to see a, a a progressive um who argues that the that the party should um, continue to focus on social issues um, and perhaps kind of double down on them, um, become even more um, left-wing, uh, become even more kind of somewhat aggressive um, in pushing those forward. And then you'll probably see another leader uh, who's going to advocate for this more moderate direction that to, um, to continue pushing the party into this um center-left position um, that, that goes after, uh, like I mentioned, um, you know, middle-class suburban voters that, that the liberals and conservatives have, have kind of traditionally. It's an interesting process to, and uh, something they're going to have to tackle sooner than later, as you mentioned in the piece. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Sam. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for writing this, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Sam Routley, who is a PhD student in political science at Western University in London, uh, talking about the challenges facing the Ontario NDP going forward. And of course, the Liberals, very similar situation too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.